No, what are you doing? In this episode, we're hosting a roundtable debate between a host of foreign policy experts. We have fellows from the Atlantic Council. We even have a couple of journalists from RT. And what we're debating today, is NATO vor or is NATO feeder? I don't even know what either of those things are. Yes, you do. Liz is saying that she doesn't know what Vor is when I can see the fucking uh, background on her computer right now. What are you talking about? What's Sonic doing then? What? (laughs) Nothing. Wait, what is Sonic? Wait, is Sonic part of something? Um, I used uh, to play Sonic the Hedgehog so much when I was a kid. I was really good at it. My dad worked for Sega for a second, so we got a free one. Your dad worked at Sega? Sega! For Sega. Did he work work in the SF? I think it must have been an SF, yeah. Yeah, because I I remember when he brought home the Sega Genesis, and I was like, yes! I was like, (laughs) I was so into it. And my dad and I would play Sega all the time together. It was cute. I think I mentioned this before, but my dad worked in the same building as Sega in SF, Mm -hmm. like in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And they had, uh, maybe early 2000s, I think 90s. uh, And they they had like all these arcade games and like the fucking like from the office. Oh, yeah, cool. But then eventually they took them all out and they only had a game that was type typing of the dead where you just type. <laughs> Instead, you know, like the games where you shoot zombies with yeah, a gun yeah, yeah. on an arcade. This imagine if they made it so that you just had to type like rabbit and then that killed the zombie. So, That's stupid. Yeah. People that, love typing of the dead. Yeah. Well it was the house of the dead, but it Mavis Beacon style. Yeah, well, I was they so should've... good at Mavis Beacon, and to this day, incredible typist. I am so fast; it it scares people. Really, I do. I just do. A lot of people don't know this, but I do one finger. I don't even do two fingers. I just do one finger, oh my and God. it's my fucking pinky. I type crazy. I when yeah, you when type like a, me, like you write, which is like a psycho. When people see me type, you should see my fuck. Listeners, of this program should see my fucking handwriting, but you never they will because the not. only time you would ever see it is when I got your name on a fucking list and I'm giving it to the police because you've been writing me weird messages. Oh my god! Along with all those other people, if they saw your handwriting, it would be like that thing where like suddenly they like it's like seeing the portrait of it's Medusa, right? Where then you like yeah. freeze and you're suddenly like. Ah! Frozen in death because it's too scary to look. It at. It would change a lot of people's dispositions towards towards both of us. Really, like, well, I my think handwriting people would is think, perfect. No, but I think people would think that like Lovely. you're. No, people would just think less of you. No, it's really yeah. it's really beautiful stuff. Hello, everyone. I'm Liz. My name is Brace, the normal guy. Of course, we're joined by Young Chomsky, my handwriting tutor and the producer of this podcast, which is called Truanon, something that I can write completely legibly, holding a pencil or a pen in a normal way that doesn't look weird and people don't comment on it. And some of us didn't really, you know, weren't really taught a lot of things when we were kids. Oh, I know. Uh, you know, I, I was w- just No, thinking, I was I taught have... how to write. I just didn't never learn how to do it good. I have never seen Young Chomsky's handwriting, I think. Yeah. I oh, I have. have. You have? Yeah, but Young Chomsky and I write each other letters. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, no, you wouldn't think that if you saw them. Okay. This is Trudon. Hello, everyone. Hello. Uh, we've got our big third part finale. 
Look at those numbers at the bottom of this podcast episode. Should say three. Hours? Oh. That's numbers. the top, sweetheart. It goes at the top. The number, like the number of the episode goes to the top, right? I don't really listen to podcasts. What I does was, it say? I the thought title? you were saying that they would see the number in the podcast title, which said no, three, because it's the, the number part. of minutes and hours that this is, which is a million. I have no idea. Anyway, we talked to our good friend Ben. Mm-hmm. We love for ben. a long time, and well, that's what you're going to listen to now. NATO Part Three. I am NATO. I am black. I am white. I'm Estonian. I'm Muslim. I'm Chechen. I'm Jewish. I'm a Tartar. Ta- 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 I'm Polish. I'm from, uh, well, no, Belarus isn't part of it. I'm from Lithuania. I'm from Latvia. I'm German. I'm French. I'm Spanish. I'm British. Oh, I'm Scottish also, part of the UK. And together we're NATO. Uh, We're welcoming you here to uh, Tallinn, Estonia, uh, where we are conducting a uh, NATO readiness operation, uh, Operation uh, uh, Licking Mother. And we have with us here today two force multipliers um, from various NATO nations. Uh, We have independent researcher Ben from Montenegro. And of course, we have Luxembourg Liz from, ironically, Belgium. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I am I am thrilled to welcome you all here to Talon for the third episode of our NATO podcast series. Uh, how are you guys doing? Very well. Uh, very glad to be here. The, the old city is lovely today. Uh, I hope we don't accidentally destroy it with any of our missile launches, uh, simulated missile launches. Sorry, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but always a, always a pleasure. Yeah, I'm excited to get my war game on. I'm so happy, Bruce, that you finally embraced your your Polish heritage. It was really amazing to hear you say that. I'm all of Europe. I'm every European. <laughs> I'm from from the lowliest racist to the highest racist. I am every <laughs> single European in one. Um, so let's recap just very briefly. Mm. Episode one talked about the history, the early history of NATO. Episode two, talked about NATO during uh, its most, let's say, storied operation during the Cold War. And episode three, we are nailing the final little nail on NATO's coffin here and talking about the end of the Cold War and, of course, the end of NATO, which broke up in 1991 uh, and was replaced by a full pan-European security institution that has led to decades of peace since. Amen. Yeah, so I, you know, part of this, we will inevitably have to get into the question of of NATO expansion into Eastern Europe. Uh, and when I say that, everybody groans, I guess. Uh, but I, <laughs> I think that um, there's been a, you know, I, even the Russian Foreign Ministry, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, I saw, you know, tweeted out something that that uh, had a reference to Baker telling Gorbachev, you know, not one inch east, and all of this. Um, and you know, for me, I'm not really interested in this in this kind of gotcha sort of thing. Uh, what is what is more interesting to me is the question of how Europe can avoid going to war again. Yeah, because it it does seem to me that unless something changes, and it's very possible it could change, but unless something changes, mm-hmm. uh, it does seem to me that Europe is is headed to another big war, uh, which is which is very concerning. 
Uh, so, you know, all through the Cold War, a, a lot of efforts were made despite the militarism and despite the, the various periods of heightened tensions. And however you feel about how the Cold War ended, it did end without a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I am, I am concerned personally, at least mm. that, um, uh, if we, if we don't return to, uh, uh, disarmament and arms control and, uh, a security regime that is actually preserving the peace, if, if the direction that, that Europe goes in is rearmament, uh, that, that sends us down a very dark path. So I hope that by going through this history, we can, we can understand some of how, how we got here and, uh, what what NATO and what the United States in particular uh, contributed to to where we are? Yeah, I think just like piggybacking on that for a second, that there's a kind of you know um, an inclination to think that a major world war would just kind of burst out of what's happening now, and that is definitely an option. Although I, I think we kind of all feel like maybe that's one of the unlikelier ones. But the fact that the the fact remains that like because of you know, kind of what we're going to get into post Cold War, and with um, the state of NATO and European militaries, like European countries are not like armed to the teeth, mm-hmm. and yet right now there are a lot of calls for them to basically revisit that and remilitarize, which is something that you know basically you would see a bunch of countries do in anticipation for a major, you know, major ensuing conflict. So it, yeah, I agree. It is definitely something to kind of take a look at as we, you know, hope for this not happening. <laughs> I think it's good, too, to keep in mind um, what uh, something we were talking about, especially, I think, during the first episode, which was NATO's sort of original unofficial goal, which was to keep the Americans in, to keep the Germans down, and to keep the Russians out. I, th- I think that's a really good sort of mm. refrain to keep in your head during all of this, and keep that in mind during... Um, basically the different things that we'll be discussing today, because uh, some of those goals seem a little more um, likely than others. And, uh, and I mean, mine, obviously everyone here knows my number one goal, keep the Germans down, willing to sacrifice <laughs> essentially <laughs> everything, <laughs> including basically that whole country in order to keep that a reality. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately with, uh, with current events and of course a social, social democratic uh, chancellorship, uh, I'm, I'm afraid that that might not be the case. And a strong Green Party. <laughs> yes. Well, no, the Green a, pro, a new pro, newly pro NATO Green Party. Yeah. Um, a real fun Green Party they got. And you know, adding that to the German Green Party's uh, pro pedophilia positions, I'm expecting them to uh, to get a new job, becoming a streamer soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get into it. Where are we starting? So you have here actually been this great quote. From Paul Henry Spock, who we spoke, we talked about, I think, in our first episode, um, who used to be the, he was the Secretary General of NATO, but he was also the Belgian Prime Minister. Um, and he said, do you want to read this? Yeah. Uh, and and he said this, you know, during the Kennedy period when there was tension around, uh, you know, should the Europeans decolonize? You know, should there be spheres of influence? How mm. should the U.S. relate to that? And he said to, and he basically resigned in protest of Kennedy's uh, sort of liberalization policy. And he said to Kennedy, even if it is decided that NATO is not to have executive powers in the economic sphere, it ought nevertheless to remain the place where Western policy vis-a-vis the underdeveloped countries is laid down. That is pretty explicit mm-hmm. <laughs> that one of the core purposes of NATO uh, is to execute the, the you know imperialist control by the uh, the Americans and the Western Europeans, 
uh, over the rest of the world. That is that is one of the reasons, one of the core reasons why NATO exists. I think something that you run into uh, when studying the history of NATO sort of in the, I think, post-60s to modern era, or really to the end of the Cold War and the, uh, a few years afterwards, is there was this really divergent path, uh, these two divergent paths that could kind of be taken. Uh, one is uh, sort of a reinforcement and uh, re-expansion of NATO and sort of a hardening of NATO. And then the other is a pan-European security infrastructure. Um, which sounds like a lot of, uh, I guess, kind of bureaucratic talk, but basically a, a, a enforcement mechanism for the entirety of Europe, a, a continent of barbarians that was basically has been at war since, uh, I mean, two of them could click sticks together. Um, and I think a really good place to start with that would be, uh, would be with Ostpolitik. Yeah, if you go back to the to the late '60s, um, and maybe going back to the the first episode where we talked about sort of Kennedy's mm-hmm. liberal offensive and and this idea of um, you know fully taking on liberal internationalism, and uh, Kennedy was recognizing that uh, these social democrats could be uh, uh, partners in this process and, mm-hmm. and could become a part of this liberal international compromise. And Willie Brandt was one of those people, and he came on the scene in a in a big way in 1969. Uh, when the the SPD, the the German Social Democratic Party, and the uh, I think it was the Liberals had a coalition government, and um, you know Willy Brandt had been talking for a while, and now that he was uh, in the chancellorship, he had the opportunity to do it of this idea of Ostpolitik, which means East Politik, uh, basically redirecting uh, a lot of Germany, and and um, this was also popular in France under on the, the Pompidou government. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came in, I think, at around the same time in 1969. He had been de Gaulle's. Uh, Pompidou had been de Gaulle's prime minister for uh, since I think between sixty two and sixty eight, um, but he and Brandt um, undertook this uh, new approach to European uh, to the European situation, which is instead of looking towards the Atlantic, let's look to the east. And uh, you can imagine, in particular, in the German context, you know, looking east has a has a different you know meaning for them because the country had been split in half uh, mm. for quite a long period of time. And this was still a highly disputed issue. I mean, even the settlement of the of the uh, you know Prussian ancestral lands was was also a highly disputed issue still at this point, and would remain disputed until the, the final settlement treaty was signed. Um, but Brandt and this was later even Brzezinski recognized this. They they believed basically that uh, by expanding these new uh, you know Fordist production techniques and this kind of Fordist compromise, which existed in Western Europe, and as we discussed, had been imported into Western Europe by the Americans. Uh, can, if we can expand that into the East, uh, then we can effectively bring the East into the Western yeah. uh, sphere with this mechanism, not with a political thaw, but w- by just purely by this economic means. Um, and so a lot in, in uh, well, in a lot of countries, but in Germany specifically, there had been a lot of firms that were kind of already uh, industrial firms like the IG Farben successors, like BASF and those, yes. who had already been thinking about this Middle Europa strategy, right? Uh, and this, you know, this goes back to the you know, the interwar period that they had been thinking about this. But now they had another shot at it, another bite at the apple this time, and so they were very favorable towards this. And um, you know, obviously, a, a lot of the old Atlanticists in the U.S. were extremely concerned by this. Uh, you know, they were worried that this was basically the end of Atlantic integration, which it, it was in many respects. Um, but uh, but yeah, Zbigniew Brzezinski, he was very farsighted, you know, arguably the the first modern Eurasianist. And mm. uh, he, he realized, well, 
you know, if we can bring Eastern, if we can give, essentially, if we can uh, give Western Europe a little bit of rope, you know, the Americans can give the Western Europeans a little bit of rope, they can go out and grab Eastern Europe back into the, into the sort of liberal democratic sphere. Yeah. And that was basically the play. And um, yeah, it, it really started this process of um, a serious thaw in East-West relations uh, and was really a coup for liberal democracy. I mean, it was extraordinarily yeah. successful over the long term, um, but it promoted, it, it led to some more, um, uh, it, it really, I think it really started down the path towards uh, this, this idea of a pan-European, uh, including Russia, um, a, a pan-European approach to European security, European economics, and European politics which never came to fruition, but it was an, I think it was an idea really embodied in there uh, that was attempted for a long time and, and ultimately failed. But I think it really begins in the most important respect with this Ostpolitik idea from, from Brandt and Pompidou. You see the continuation of these kind of politics uh, in the 75 uh, Helsinki Accords, too. I, I was about to call it Helinski again, uh, which is also, to be clear, I find the way charming. I will pronounce it for the rest of my life, the way I've always <laughs> pronounced it. You can't get mad at the, the There's too many umlauts in that. I know there's no umlauts in this word, but there's too many umlauts in other words for, I need a little bit of leeway It has with this spiritual <laughs> umlauts. Yeah. Umlauts? See, I'm calling them umlauts. <laughs> um, you know, these were a series of discussions that took place in yeah. Finland. I'm not going to say the name of there the city. Uh, that basically, I, I think, I mean, the idea was to essentially end the Cold War and to cement detente. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. <laughs> um, detente was a you know a, a a major U.S. and and Soviet strategy, uh, sort of during the middle period of the Cold War in order to like really uh, halt any kind of overt aggressions. And what really ended up happening was a lot of the sort of violence between these two superpowers, one of which was almost always on the side of righteousness, the other, uh, which is my country, was almost on the side of, always on the side of death squads uh, and, and people who killed peasants, which is a major part of US foreign policy, is peasant massacres. Anyways, this was uh, basically a way of cementing detente. Um, you know, a, a a huge part of this that you actually still see referenced, uh, not a whole lot else from it is really brought up uh, uh, in, in the modern day, uh, is the issue of whether European nations can join alliances of their own accord, right? And so that is like a, essentially a way of trying to do away with the spheres of influence. Now, in my opinion, that is basically totally bunko. That is, that is just, uh, frankly, I'm not, you know... The, if you want to get into like realpolitik or whatever, I don't know how you pronounce that. Uh, that's just not the way things shake out usually. Um, and certainly wasn't the way things were going to shake out during the Cold War. There was also the issues of settlements of borders. Uh, there is, Americans may not realize this, but there has been some contentions over the Polish-German border going back for a little uh, little ways. Those were essentially solved during this. And I got to say, I'll give this to the Germans. They did pretty good with that with during reunification too. That didn't, that didn't really come up again, but uh, I'm digressing here. Anyways, it furthered trade relations between the two superpowers and uh, a reduction in military armaments on the continent. So a huge thing with that too, and that's like kind of a too big of an issue for us to get really granular about today, but arms control in Europe was a massive, massive, massive issue. 
from basically the moment that you were able to put nuclear weapons in missiles uh, until today, really. And and it remains actually like a pretty big issue with uh, with NATO uh, and particularly with missile defense systems in Eastern Europe, uh, which would essentially prevent you know a Russian nuclear attack either in Europe or, or I guess parts of America. Well, that's a huge technological revolution, right? The, mm-hmm. the creation of the missile defense system. It basically shifted kind of how everyone everyone's strategy. I mean, it had to. Um, because it just like inaugurated this entirely new development in, in technology. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I, that comment about Helsinki Accords being a, being an attempt to end the cold war. I think that that really was the vision at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and if you think about, you know, detente is very complicated because, you know, Kissinger and Nixon, you know, throughout that entire presidency, you know, tried to play the Chinese off the Russians and the yeah. Russians off the Chinese, you know, this kind of Kissinger strategy. But for the Europeans, you know, this was really a question of, does, again, does Europe become a war zone again? Uh, and and how do we, how do we, you know, how do we live together with the East? I mean, at this point, you know, uh, there were people who thought, oh, these these communist countries in Eastern Europe, they'll, you know, they'll collapse soon enough and we don't have to worry about it. But at this point, and this was part of the Ostpolitik too, like they were there, they were still yeah. existing. What are you, are you going to, are you going to wait another generation before you start to engage with them? You know? So I think that, that. The Helsinki Accords were really were an attempt to end the Cold War and settle it once and for all. Total failure in that respect, but did lay the groundwork for some of the later things that would happen. You know, I think one of the um, one of the most contentious elements was the human rights component as well. Yeah, uh, which was was which was pretty sharply directed against the Soviet Union from the West. You know, not that the West had a had a very good uh, human rights record at all, but it was uh, that was seen in particular as. Uh, uh, a way for the Soviet Union to um, try to uh, basically reconcile this issue with the West, uh, which had for so long been a, a propaganda point. Um, and it was not really successful in that respect either, no. because uh, it basically became, uh, it just became another another arrow in the propaganda quiver for the West that, well, they're, you know, they signed this agreement and they're not abiding by it. Um, but I'll say that the, what you mentioned about the idea of a country, any country being able to join whatever alliance you know, Gorbachev, when when uh, East Germany was integrated into West Germany, uh, Gorbachev basically cited the Helsinki uh, Agreement as the reason why uh, East Germany should be allowed to join NATO. You know, that was basically, I think, kind of a face-saving gesture yeah. from him, ultimately, because uh, he had campaigned pretty vigorously against that, and many Europeans did. Uh, but it did it, re- it remained significant and important, and uh, I think it, it uh, you know, it remained a significant document basically until the end of the Cold War when it... Uh, was no longer relevant, essentially. Well, you still see it referenced now, uh, especially in terms of obviously NATO expansion. Um, and it, you know, it, it's funny. I think in a lot of ways, like there's all of these like conferences and documents and treaties that have been signed during the 20th century. And what you see now is sort of like the tactical employment of just like certain clauses from it, right? Like, yeah. well, this is you know, like this is. Uh, you know, any any nation should be able to join any alliance that it wants is really all that remains of this. Yeah. Right. But it's still it's still referenced. None of the other parts are at all useful. If they were useful to to America, essentially, they would be. Yeah, because it also included, for instance, you know, the the involvability of borders and sovereignty. Mm-hmm, right. and, you know, obviously, the U.S. has no problem violating another country's sovereignty. It happens all the time. So, you know, like you said, it's very selective use of of whatever can, they can use as a cudgel, but. 
I, I will say as a, you know, as a representation of the hopes of a lot of Europeans, particularly a lot of people yeah. in Western Europe and a lot of people in Eastern Europe did not want a war. Yes. And, you know, this was a, this was a, I think a sop to that in many respects. And it was seen as a, you know, again, it was a potential way to end the cold war. Uh, but, uh, but again, I think there were a lot of factors that, that made that impossible. Unfortunately, the great Soviet Union, by this time, deteriorating. And throughout the sclerotic 70s and the groovy 80s, because the Soviet Union had a fairly groovy 80s, internally at least. Not exactly. Early 80s, great culture stuff coming out exactly. of the Soviet Union. Yeah, music, yeah. when they finally invented their own form of cocaine, things got <laughs> incredibly better. <laughs> but all good things have to come to an end. And by 89, the Reaper was sitting atop his black camel, which was kneeling at the door of the USSR. And uh, the, the sun was, was quickly fading on the entirety of the Eastern Bloc. And I think a lot of people in power in America could pretty clearly see that. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting. So many, uh, you know, if you ask, for example, Jack Matlock, who was Reagan's um, uh, and Bush's ambassador to the Soviet yeah. Union and was almost the last by, you know, a handful of months, you know, he would he would be very quick and a lot of people like him would be very quick to draw a distinction between the end of the Cold War and the end of the USSR. Yeah. And in a literal sense, that is true. But it's pretty hard, I think, to to really split that because one is pretty clearly leads directly to the other. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that there's a there's a lot of talk uh, amongst people at that point in time, and they will still maintain this position that the US didn't win the Cold War. You know, everybody won, right? Because it was the end of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. uh, but the the conduct and the behavior of the Americans in the period following the end of the Cold War, the conduct think, of victors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think that that um, I think that that's a shame because I do think that um, there was a there was this opportunity to to go with, down a different path that wasn't mm -hmm. taken. But you know, the reality of geopolitics, the reality of great power politics. You know, you're you're never going to let a victory go to waste, even if you don't even claim it as a victory. Well, I think something to keep in mind is is that two track kind of approach that we uh, or a possible two divergent paths that could be taken um, that that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and one is the is the construction of sort of a pan European security infrastructure, really uh, a a a some kind of forum to essentially prevent conflict between nations uh, in that conflict ridden continent. Um, and sort of the strengthening of NATO and really just the entrenchment, not only entrenchment, but advance of America, uh, and which is, of course, what we actually saw happen in reality. Yeah. And at the, you know, at the, in 1989, and, and even Gorbachev was talking about this earlier, there were these competing visions of, um, you know, it really commanded a lot of attention, this idea of, uh, for Gorbachev, he called it our common European home. Mm -hmm. You know, Bush called it uh, our Europe free and whole. Um, and they had basically had competing speeches, essentially, you know, articulating different visions of this. But, you know, Bush said, you know, very clearly, you know, uh, we're at the end of one era and the beginning of another. And I noted in that regard to the Soviet Union, our policy is to move beyond containment. Um, you know, the world has waited long enough. The time is right. Let Europe be whole and free. And, you know, this for Bush, this is conditioned on you know, multi-party liberal democratic sure. elections, you know, this party's getting counsel from the Western European parties, the end of immigration restrictions, you know, the Berlin Wall coming down, 
all of these things. So it's highly conditioned on those things. You know, Gorbachev throughout this whole period, and you know, God knows why he did it, but he took a much more conciliatory approach. Mm, yes, and you know, he basically said uh, that you know that it's time to deposit in the archives the postulates of the Cold War period when Europe was regarded as an arena of confrontation divided into spheres of influence and somebody's outpost. Uh, in today's interdependent world, the geopolitical notions born of another era turn out to be just as useless in real politics as the laws of classical mechanics in quantum theory. And then he goes on to say, the philosophy of the common European home concept rules out the probability of an armed clash and the very possibility of the use of force or threat of force, alliance against alliance, inside the alliances, whatever. This philosophy suggests that a doctrine of restraint should take the place of the doctrine of deterrent. Uh, deterrence. This is not just a play on words, but the logic of European development prompted by life itself. And he goes on to talk in the speech about peaceful competition of different systems. You know, at this point, it was thought that the Cold War could end and Eastern Europe could remain, you know, essentially communist. Yes. You know, yeah. basically state monopolist, corporatist, uh, you know, not really socialist in that sense. But um, but again, the involubility of sovereignty, the need for reduction in arms, particularly nuclear arms. So both of them had, at, at the very least, the vision of a pan-European, you know, this idea that Europe is going to be united in the most important way, yeah. which is in the security arena. And that, and you know, Gorbachev was very explicit that this means we, we, we can't have a war on the European continent. You know, that's not acceptable. So we have to find an alternative institution uh, as a way of solving these disputes um, and, and have another, have a different mechanism, you know, in the same way that NATO played its role to, to, you know, for all the other things it did, it did stop an outright, you know, mm. war, for instance, between Germany and France again, or something like this. So in that same way, there was this vision of a, a similar architecture for the whole of Europe, including Russia and all of Eastern Europe, uh, which would fulfill that role of, of creating this, you know, united European area that, that um, whether it had competing economic systems, but, but uh, to have a, a way to avoid any kind of security confrontation, a, a military confrontation. Now, something I've noticed from reading quotes and sort of reminiscences from reminis reminiscences from people uh, during this period uh, on the American side is just how out of his depth Gorbachev seems during a lot of these mm -hmm. negotiations. And you know that 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 quote, you know, he sounds so sort of like statesmanlike and, and intelligent. Um, and you know, I have no doubt that Gorbachev has a degree of intelligence, but uh, when it comes to negotiating. I think he is probably one of the all-time worst negotiators in human yeah. history. Yeah. Because, I mean, whether – I mean, I'm sure he didn't know this, uh, but the notion of, of the USSR or Russia um, later joining the European community in, in the same way that really any other European state might was basically laughable. I mean, the EU uh, ruled out Russia joining basically from the get-go. I mean, literally from the get-go, they would never be a member of the EU, yeah. um, and and it wasn't conditional on any sort of internal changes. They just flat out vetoed it, uh, and and I think that kind of gives you a um, really an insight and onto how a lot of people actually viewed Russia, which is not as a um, as sort of like a defeated enemy, but still like the seeds of being an enemy in there. Like uh, you know, there there is a sort of like a an enmity that 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 transcends regimes and years uh, yeah. and 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 epochs there, and uh, and so there was never really any chance of this vision actually coming to fruition because it would always exclude one of the largest countries, or in fact the largest country in Europe. Even though I guess a lot of it's technically in Asia, but you know, thinking of Russia as a European country in this sense, uh, or in the political sense here, um, 
it, it is uh, it was never actually going to happen. You saw that same kind of two track debate a little bit, also just jumping ahead for one second when uh, you know after the the big crash in ninety seven where there was like great debate in like U.S. policy foreign policy circles of okay should we kick the Russians while they're down like they're so like down and out their market has crashed we've you know crashed it and you know there's just like a a huge fire sale going on basically should we continue kicking them down because you know we can like really keep them down now or do we kind of like help work them back in and you know we know which side went out on that but there was always this, like what you're saying, this kind of long-standing. Yeah, it's something that goes back much, much deeper and much further than I don't know, just a couple of institutions. There's, there's mm-hmm. some cultural. I don't know what it is. I don't really know exactly. Too what far it is. east, I think. But yeah, is really there is this sort of like, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's very, it's very fascinating. But you see it, you know, throughout the decades for sure. I think if you think about you know the difference between how Germany was or West Germany, the Federal Republic, was integrated mm-hmm. into uh, the liberal capitalist system after World War II, you know, versus how the treatment of Russia following the end of the Cold War, I think a, maybe a part of that is just that for a, you know since 1917, the you know industrial and capital links between the Soviet Union and the West were non-existent essentially. Yeah. Very, very limited, you know, versus Germany, you know, had had essentially just been temporarily booted, you know, from the liberal capitalist order before, you know, if you think about the amount of, yeah. inter, you know, the amount of investment going into the German economy sure. uh, during the during the interwar period. Um, so there was, I, I think essentially Russia was marked as a peripheral area yeah. and it was going to serve the capitalist system as a supply of raw materials you know, at the lowest price possible, preferably, and maybe some migrant labor, you know, I think that was, yeah, essentially. And I think that that was basically, you know, that was the idea for Russia. That's, that's the role that they're going to serve, which is, you know, um, ultimately what happened to a lot of Eastern Europe. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't think of Germany as having an empire because in a geopolitical sense, it doesn't. But if you look at the economic relationship between Germany and the countries in their orbit. Sure. They definitely have a sphere of, of influence. Absolutely. Yeah, talk to yeah. anyone in Greece. Yeah, <laughs> agree, they, how or, they feel about the Germans. Or even the German relationship with, you know, during the end of the Yugoslav era with Slovenia and sure. Croatia. I mean, it's, you know, it gets very, very tricky. And, you know, the but and I think Russia was basically included in that. I think the idea, you know, this is something I I've, I've read from Samir Amin and I I think it's definitely true, you know, Eastern Europe was for the Germans and Russia was for the Americans and, yeah. and that was basically uh, that was basically, and so if you think about NATO, has this contradictory dual role. You know, it has on the one hand the role that it played, you know, in the Cold War period of uh, militarily unifying and pacifying Western Europe, um, but it also had that role, you know, from that Paul Henri Spock quote that we played that this is the this is the where. Uh, the big powers of of the international capitalist system decide how to play with the underdeveloped countries, right? And mm. now Russia is one of those, right? Russia is just another, you know, peripheral country on the edges of the capitalist system. And so, you know, that if if NATO is meant to be an enforcement mechanism for the imperialist, uh, you know, rulers of this society, and it's also simultaneously meant to be a, a method of securing European, you know, of, of securing Europe. You know, an architecture for European security, uh, then Russia's position in that it, it really can't join NATO, 
right? Because then how can it be right. a target of NATO, which it which it did become? So it's a uh, it it naturally that those two roles that NATO you know takes uh, it they, they contradicted themselves in this instance, and I think it created uh, the in many respects led to the situation that we're in today. So in 1990, uh, one of sort of the greatest architectural crimes of the 20th century. Um, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a, 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 a any kind of comparable example, and, and frankly, I can't. Uh, I guess maybe, I mean, this is the 21st century, but like those new kind of apartment buildings they put up that like like <laughs> the tech worker looking apartment buildings, um, kind of comes close. Uh, but but a uh, the Berlin Wall comes down. And uh, and Germany is reunited, and I think now to to people. I mean, I was uh, I was born in '89, right? And so by the time you know this rolls around, I'm I'm I mean I'm smoking cigs and talking and stuff, but I don't really get what's going on in world affairs. Like I had sex with the lady who was teaching me how to ride horses, and of course, like I'd killed a few servants on our baronial estate, but like I didn't get what Europe was. Um, and and I think now, even just like has someone having grown up uh, in sort of the post Cold War era, it like when I first started learning about this, I funnily enough from a book by Gunter Grass, uh, which mm-hmm. was he was he was one of the I probably the foremost intellectual who was against German reunification. Talk about umlauts too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I and actually a member of the Waffen SS. Um, but uh, he he wrote this. Um, he wrote this really interesting book that I can't fucking remember the name of, but I bought it when I was like 16. Uh, that was basically a series of polemics against reunification of Germany and for the wall. And if not a physical wall, then just like a national wall, uh, you know, like a sort of just two nations, um, which, which was incredible to me. Uh, and, and, it, and, and I, I think all that is to say is that like, you know, now to me, it's like, well, of course Germany would be one country. You know, it's like two countries split in half because of geopolitical reality, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, they, of course, they'd reunify when when the situation changed. But it was actually a pretty contentious issue. Um, I mean, uh, you know, Germany was the front line of the Cold War. And literally, you know, I mean, there were troops stationed in, in both halves of Germany from both different blocks. Uh, and and when the wall came down, it was time to reunite. There was a real question of of the balance of power of Europe changing, not just in the fact that like the Warsaw Pact, uh, you know, was, was dissolving and, you know, the Eastern Bloc as a whole was, was, uh, fading away or, you know, blowing up, however you want to put it. Um, but the fact that like there was going to be a new power essentially on the continent because a reunited Germany, even after sort of decades of totally uneven, um, you know, development and management, although East Germany did pretty well, especially compared to a lot of Eastern Bloc states. Um, you know, a lot of uh, continental powers, uh, and I'll say continental powers because they ain't exactly world powers, like France and Britain were actually pretty freaked out about this because there was about to be a new big guy who's moving in the apartment building. You know what happens when a big guy moves into your apartment building? You're, you're forced to hook up with him sometimes on the weekends. Um, and uh, and that's it, – you know, it, it's – all that is to say again – that uh, that actually it kind of merits some looking at because that's a pretty important development in NATO's history as well. Yeah, if you think about that time period, like all of the old guarantees, mm-hmm. you know, all of the old things that France and Britain had both relied on, France and Britain in particular, because as you mentioned, they were really the ones who were Mitterrand, especially, yeah. was very very concerned about German yes. reunification. <laughs> you know, France and Germany have a long history. 
Mitterrand was a POW, I think, too. Like, he, yeah, was, in the, he know, was in the resistance. So he's per- like, personal eh, for yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, is Germany going to get a nuke? Is Germany yeah. going to have another empire? What's going to happen with the part of Germany that you, that's now Poland at this is point? Is the Pickelhaub coming back? Yeah, exactly. We're going to have to start wearing lederhosen. and like, what's going to mm-hmm. happen here? And it was, a, it, you know, and in particular, you know, Gorbachev was trying to slow reunification down yeah. because for the Soviet Union, if the, and this is what ended up happening, but um, particularly for the Eastern Bloc, they were very, con- and honestly, Mitterrand also was concerned about this because he thought that NATO should go away at this point. Yeah. I mean, you, you can, at this point, we didn't talk about this, but, uh, uh, but uh, France was no longer part of NATO's military command structure. Yeah. They're sort of politically a part of it, but mm-hmm. they weren't part of their, their military command structure anymore and had been kind of pursuing an alternative. They pursued an alternative nuclear policy leading up mm-hmm. to this. So, you know, they were kind of primed to, to say, hey, let's get rid of NATO. And Gorbachev was feeling the same way. We have to come up with, you know, before Germany can reunify, we've got to come up with an alternative um, uh, security architecture. Um, yeah, and, it was basically a race, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that was, not, that was not happening. The German reunification was happening too quickly. And, you know, there's been a lot of, I actually read a very interesting and pretty even-handed paper from the OSCE, Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the organization that that we'll get to in just a moment, but um, it, was, it was called the the I think it was called the Pathway to Paris um, about the Paris you know the Paris Charter which created sure. the OSCE. Okay, I and thought you were talking about the Germans again. <laughs> yeah, right. They love they love their pathways to Paris. Yeah, um, and you know what what that uh, I found it very interesting. That paper had a lot of really great quotes from from some uh, memorandums of conversation that have now been declassified and things. And um, the point of view from that paper, and it, it does match up with with um, some other things that I've seen, is that on the one hand, you know, Bush and Baker, Bush's Secretary of State, are talking about and making reassurances to Gorbachev. Yes, we're going to have an alternative security arrangement for Europe. Yes, yes, of course we will do that. But NATO is going to continue to exist. Yeah. And simultaneous to that, you know, they're telling other people we have to keep NATO around because NATO is the only way to keep American troops in Europe, and we have to do that. And if I could just very briefly, so Baker Baker writes to Bush, speaking about a conversation he had with Gorbachev. I used your speech, you know, one of the earlier speeches about the the Europe whole and free, and our recognition of the need to adapt NATO politically and military, and to develop CSCE, that is to say, the Alternative European Security Arrangement, to reassure the Soviet Foreign Minister that the process would not yield winners and losers. Instead, it would produce a new legitimate European structure, one that would be inclusive, not exclusive. And then Bush says to Helmut Kohl, the German chancellor, the CSCE cannot replace NATO as the core of the West deterrent strategy in Europe and as the fundamental justification for U.S. troops in Europe. So talking out of both sides of the mouth here, yeah. telling the Germans one thing, and Helmut Kohl, the chancellor of, of Germany, is you know ardently pushing for this reunification. He knows what this means for Germany, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so and saying one thing to Helmut Kohl, saying another thing to Gorbachev. And, you know, ultimately... Um, this, this, it really when e- when East Germany joins because initially, and this is this is what uh, people you know please gotcha games about. So Baker did say to Gorbachev initially, yeah. not one inch east, mm-hmm. and what that meant was that yes, East Germany may join West Germany, they may become a unified Germany, but East Germany will be basically left out of NATO structures, and that there won't be troops in there won't be NATO troops in East Germany. It'll essentially be demilitarized. That was the idea that the Soviets would leave and it would be demilitarized. But as these debates took place and German reunification was happening faster than this alternative 
uh, European, you know, what became the OSCE, the, the Organization for Security Cooper- and Cooperation in Europe, um, that went all out the window, basically. Mm-hmm. And it was then decided by, uh, essentially by Kohl, by Helmut Kohl, by Baker and by Bush, that East Germany was going to be a part of Germany uh, and that all of Germany was going to be a part of NATO. And I think that was basically the end of the idea that um, that this alternative security arrangement was going to take over. Because if if Germany's not reunified under those auspices in the same, I mean, you, uh, the you know the allegory might be the reunification, uh, the the German situation under NATO, right? Like G- Germany rejoins Europe under the auspices of NATO, uh, and and that's the way that you know that uh, that tricky political issue can be managed. But if Germany's just being reunited in this Western imperialist, you know, military alliance on the on your the European continent. The idea that there's going to be an alternative, peaceful, you know, solution between East and West in Europe, it's just not feasible at that point anymore. So I really think this is like this is pretty much it, and the the very brief window of hope. And it was still held on, and the OSCE still exists. But I think that basically this this uh, really closed the book on on this alternative uh, European security arrangement. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning too that that Baker's promise to Gorbachev actually was it was a I don't want to say a ripoff, but was maybe an homage to uh, something that the West German Foreign Minister, this guy named Hans Dietrich Genscher, who I think just died recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he made this big speech in Tutzing, Germany. Uh, this, so this became kind of known as the Tutzing formula that NATO wouldn't expand, and Baker essentially repeated those promises to Gorbachev. I, I agree. Like, I, I think that like. Basically, the Americans and the Germans uh, were essentially saying anything in order for the Red Army troops to leave Eastern Germany. Yeah. Like yeah. really, all that's anything that happened after that. Well, it's like the Russians don't get a say, right? Yeah. Like you're out. Um, and so, you know, like we, you know, we 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 talked about this I'm pretty extensively. I feel like in in one of the episodes we did on Ukraine with Mark Ames. But it's like these promises, you know, whether they were, I mean, you know, there's a lot made that the fact that like. Gorbachev didn't have him write any of this down, which is another classic case of what you would call Gorbachev-style bargaining. Also, Um, just real quick, true non-tip to the listener, always write it down. Always get it in writing. (laughs) Always get it in writing. You know what? Number one thing, get it in writing. And then, now that we got cell phones, take a photo of it in writing. So you got it on your person, and you got it in writing. My, My thing, though, beyond that, writing doesn't really mean much either. Make them do it immediately at gunpoint. That's that's really the only way. If you're dealing with someone who's duplicitous and perfidious, the only thing that you can really do is just make them. All right, let's just you know why why don't we just go do this now? That's especially if you're talking about something like reunifying a country. Yeah, yeah, get it in exactly. Um, and you know, of course, that the the any any sort of notion that full Article Five guarantees wouldn't be extended (laughs) to Germany, uh, and, and this this actually comes up a lot, like. You know, there are, I think I mentioned this maybe in the first episode, but there are countries who have, let's say, alternative style relationships uh, with NATO, right? France being one of them, Denmark being another, Spain being another. Uh, and so this wasn't like just like some shit that they were pulling out of a hat. Like this was not an unrealistic uh, sort of equation for, for, for East, the Eastern part of Germany. Um, but in, in real, in real politic reality, like this was never going to happen. Um, you know, Germany was going to be reunited and was going to be reunited and Germany was going to be fully a member of NATO. Yeah. I think the point about, uh, you know, cause it, uh, 
the the these what people say in these kinds of diplomatic conferences and yeah. even what gets written on treaties it's just a reflection of the underlying geopolitical realities yeah. typically um and as you mentioned you know at this point in time the soviet you know the cold war was clearly winding down but it wasn't clear that the ussr was going to be gone anytime yeah, soon yeah. i mean i think maybe some people had a sense that maybe it would come to an end soon enough but the idea that it was going to be gone, I mean, basically it was like a year between the signing yeah. of this, the treaty on the final settlement with respect to Germany and the, and I think it was Christmas Day 91, right? That yeah. Gorbachev was basically like, it's over. So it was like it was like a year basically between that. And I don't think it was anticipated that it would happen that quickly. So you can imagine for the Americans, you know, USSR still exists and they still have like 400,000 troops in East mm-hmm. Germany at this point. So you can imagine, I mean, the idea that uh, the idea that at the beginning of these no- negotiations, you know, like in February of 1990, because the situation changed a lot between February 1990 and September yeah. 1990. You know, in February 1990, it looked crazy that East Germany would would become a part of NATO. Uh, but by the end of that period, you know, the situation was starting to change. And even when you get to, you know, you know, let's say 93, 94, when NATO's Partnership for Peace, you know, starts off like, the situation had changed even further. You know, the USSR didn't exist at that point. Yeltsin right. was close buddies with Clinton. So the the what was said at this point, I think, between Baker and Gorbachev was really just a reflection of the underlying reality and the fact that the most important thing was getting those Russian soldiers out of East Germany at that point. And, and like you said, once that happened. And keeping you know, the American ones in. Yeah, which is kind of crazy when you think about that, that the that the Russians had to pull their soldiers out, but yeah. because because the Germans are okay with it, which to be clear, I mean, we talk about, I mean, this happens a lot when you talk about geopolitics, you say the Germans, the Russians. Well, who are we're we talking, talking about? We're talking about the state. Yeah, whenever exactly. we're talking yeah. about, when we say the Russians or we say the Germans, we say the Americans, we're talking about uh, like state bureaucrats, state officials, leaders of the state. You're not talking about like the working people yeah. of Germany or the working people of Russia. like. That's not at all when you're talking about foreign policy, like yeah, exactly. It's because just, you're always talking about state organs. Yeah, and the and the you know the bourgeoisie who are yeah. ultimately yeah. the power the behind the state. Yeah, and the and the because German, I mean Germans were not necessarily they in did, favor. No, of, yeah, NATO. No. NATO had I, I think NATO was more unpopular than it was popular. I mean, this is the case for much of Europe up until. Uh, a week and a half ago. No, um, but this was the case for for much of Europe during the yeah. Cold War, and then you know it it obviously you know it, it dips and it rises. Um, but uh, but yeah, NATO was not popular. A large part of that had to do with I think for a lot of Europeans the fact that like America was the one, well, mostly the one with a lot of nuclear weapons. Um, and if those were going to be deployed, they would not be deployed. Uh, they would be deployed in on the European continent if they're going yeah, to be, you I know th- the most immediate place for them. I think a lot of it's related to a lot of the debates and and protests that happened in the '80s around the cruise missile. Yeah. You know, this idea that you know, is it real? Are we really going to have nuclear cruise missiles and things like in my backyard? Essentially, if I live in you know Bonn or wherever. So yeah, and and like you said, in Eastern Europe, except for Poland, Poland NATO has always been pretty popular yeah. in Poland. But apart from Poland, it. you know, the rest of Eastern Europe in the early '90s, the idea of joining NATO. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of interest. It was it was later developments that triggered that. But yeah. Germans, Germans were not necessarily in favor, but you know, because of the Trump, you know, liberal yeah. democracy and how all that goes down, you know, it's legitimate for the Americans to still have Rammstein Air Base, but the you know the the Soviet troops in East Germany was was not legitimate, I guess. I, I think one thing too, and uh, that actually sort of makes me sympathetic to NATO is there were some sort of American and and particularly British and French actually sides of the debate too, is that like a neutral 
independent non-NATO Germany is like the worst thing possible for France and the UK. Uh, you know, like you mentioned, that that sort of Eastern Europe was seen as Germany's sphere of influence. Of course, that did basically end up happening in a lot of ways anyways. Yeah. Um, but Germany in NATO basically kept them at least kept them down in that sort of sense of, you know, uh, the, the NATO sense of keeping the Germans down, or at least kept them on some sort of leash uh, under sort of American auspices. They could maintain this control over Eastern Europe. Or not yeah. maintain this control, but really develop the sphere of influence. Um, yeah, because you know, I think that the Russians. You know, it's funny now. Especially, mean, again, growing up in the not only in the shadow of the Cold War, but really like with a, uh, you know, a lot of. I mean, a lot of the World War II veterans died when we were, you know, a lot younger, and so that we aren't really living in the shadow of the Second World War, really at all in any immediate sense. Um, but, uh, but I think this was, you know, this was a recent memory for a lot of people. It's like, I think a lot of people are confused. Like, why does China, like China distrust Japan so much, you know? And like, why are these sort of like these sentiments, uh, you know, on, on, on China, uh, in China against the Japanese government? Um, well, it's because the, you know, the Japanese invaded, raped and pillaged through their country. Uh, Mm. and, and, you know, the same thing happened with the Germans in the second world war for a lot of these, uh, you know, these, these, these are somewhat recent memories, you know, 50 years before for these people. Um, Unfortunately, Germany has not been kept down as much as uh, as as people like <laughs> well, me. I, know. Or- I was I was going to say that, like in tandem to what's happening, like where we're at right now in the in the podcast timeline, in tandem is the which we don't have time when we shouldn't even talk about. But I'm just going to throw a little little tip to it. Is in tandem is the development of the EU that's happening kind of yeah. right around this moment, and even just the beginning kind of discussions about the single market and the and a single currency, which uh, you know, so that's all kind of happening. You know, it starts gaining steam a little bit in the like earlier nineties r- rather mm-hmm. than like ninety ninety one, but really, it's like this is right where once Germany is unified, it kind of like you know starts going really full steam ahead um, through the 90s, which is an important like kind of in tandem development on the continent, obviously. Uh, Yeah, I think especially because as as Brace mentioned earlier, Russia was basically excluded by definition from the EU. Yes. uh, You know, which is the European community at the time. But yeah, the idea that Germany is going to be, you know, economically European community and militarily NATO, and both of those institutions are going to exclude Russia. uh, Yeah, it creates a very tricky situation. You know how like when you begin dating someone and you like make it very clear to them like a year or two in, you're like, listen, I am dating other people right now. I want you to know that you will maybe make full girlfriend status one day, but so may some of these other hoes. And I just want to make that clear to everybody right here what's going on. Like we have our mutual stuff that we do. And I, I, I would like to maybe integrate some of our other, you know, p- possible hoes into this uh, you know, integration type thing that we're doing here. Um, and that, that's, what's called a partnership for peace. That's something that <laughs> I was going to say is the poly for peace, but I, I, I kind of, I lost the ability to, I'm like, I'm not really sure how well this allegory works. So like, oh, it I doesn't really, work at all, but yeah, like, I, really I like when you just there. go with it. Yeah. I just, you just, that's the thing. A lot of people don't understand about podcasting. You can just never stop talking. So if something stops making sense, you have to start trying to make it make sense. Yeah. Again. 
Similar to geopolitics, actually. Exactly. So let's talk about the partnership for motherfucking peace. Yeah, I think I think the partnership for peace is really interesting because it's a it's a you know we had this failure of the the organization for security cooperation in Europe that was yeah. basically a dead letter you know the the you know funnily enough I think the one of the first the charter signing in 1990 was like three months after the NATO uh, July 1990 summit where NATO was like you know we're still we'll still we're still here yeah. you know we're gonna we're gonna still have a role and OSCE was like well shit you know what are we <laughs> what are we here for then what, my chop liver well, yeah, I just exactly. gotta go hang out in eastern Ukraine in in 15 years <laughs> yeah exactly I mean that's right that's all they that's all they're left yeah. to do is basically to mediate the conflicts yes. they failed to prevent uh and <laughs> you know in and I think the other current that was concerning to the Americans in particular at this point in time uh, was that the Europeans were going to have their own uh, European defense establishment yeah. of some kind, you know, integrated within the EU, essentially, w- what was becoming the EU at that point. And so the, the you know, there was a defense planning guidance that was written in 1992. It was intended for the years 1949, uh, 1994, 1999, a nice DOD five-year plan. Uh, While the United States supports the goal of European integration, we must seek to prevent the emergence of European-only security arrangements, which would undermine NATO particularly the alliance's integrated command structure. So this was a way, the partnership for peace then is a way to uh, essentially give, uh, expand expand NATO into these countries which were going to become a part of the European community, some of these Mm -hmm. Eastern European countries, without expanding NATO. And, uh, you know, it was a very subtle sleight of hand. And the way that it was discussed with Yeltsin in particular because, you know, at this point in time, like Yeltsin and Clinton were buddies. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I, when when Yeltsin got reelected in 96, I think there was that famous Time magazine cover that said, yes. you know, the Yanks to the rescue or something along those lines. With the, the cartoon face. It's always a bad sign when you got a cartoon face on the <laughs> yeah. cover of Time. Yeah, exactly. Even some of the policies we're discussing now were basically, um, I mean, some of them were released and talked about in tandem with Yeltsin's reelection campaign in order to help it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Yeah. Absolutely, because you know NATO expansion. Uh, I think because I think like in December '93, like the ultra nationalists mm-hmm. got like you know twenty five or thirty yeah. percent of the vote or something like that in Russia. You know, so there was like serious discontent in, in within Russia about you know this whole security situation. Um, and you know, I think this was an attempt to help Yeltsin kind of stave that off. And basically, what it what it was was uh, uh, non NATO membership, NATO membership, effectively. Yeah. It was not fully implemented everywhere because you know uh, Russia was technically a member. I think until I think until 2014, um, but it became the way that a lot of Eastern European countries ended up joining NATO was through this pathway. And in '93, um, the Clinton Secretary of State Christopher went and said to Yeltsin uh, that there could be no recommendation to ignore or exclude Russia from full participation in the future security of Europe. Again, this was like a sop to this idea of. You know, yeah, of course, we're going to have this integrated European, you know, security architecture. And so he's uh, Christopher goes on as a result of our study, a partnership for peace would be recommended to the NATO summit, which would be open to all members of the NACC. So this was a, a existing organization that included Russia and all of Eastern Europe, yeah. uh, sort of a way to convene with with NATO, uh, including all European and NIS states, uh, which is the former former Soviet Union states. There'd be no step taken at any uh, at this time to push anyone ahead of the others. So this was during a time period where. Uh, potentially Poland joining mm-hmm. and you know other Eastern European countries, 
but this idea that we're not we're not going to do that. We're not going to let some Eastern European countries in and others. And so Yeltsin, according to this memorandum of conversation, literally jumped out of his chair and said uh, that this is was genius. Uh, and he asked to confirm that everybody would be on equal footing. It would be a partnership, not a membership. And I love that. Like, a partnership, not a membership. Of I course. Mean, it's yes. like, my God. Yeah, exactly. We're not ex- like, yeah, like we're not exclusive, but like, I like, I, mean, I love you. And, and for, you know, for Yeltsin, he was like, this has solved my problem. Like, yeah, this has right, solved yeah. my ultranationalist problem because now we're a part of NATO. We're a partner. We're in a partnership with NATO. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, no but, one's a member. We're all just partners. Exactly. No one's a, no one's a member. We're all just partners. But it seems that Yeltsin did not get the second part of what Christopher said, which <laughs> is that Christopher said, we will in due course be looking at the question of membership as a longer term eventuality. There will be an evolution based on the development of a habit of cooperation, but over time. Yeah. And so I think this was basically, I, I do think the angle of Yeltsin's domestic support was a, mm-hmm. was a factor in this. Absolutely, I think it was a way to help Yeltsin's ultranationalist problem. And I think it was uh, also, of course, seen as a way to get Eastern Europe into NATO without kind of uh, reneging on this idea that, um, you know, that European security should be a cooperative affair managed by everybody. And just the way... Uh, I encourage people if you if you Google uh, you know Yeltsin Christopher Partnership for Peace Memorandum of Conversation you should find it it is it is it is hilarious to read. <laughs> I mean, even the fact that Yeltsin thinks that Russia is included in the European like in the definition of European is like yeah. a problem, you know. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, it seems like from the get go that it was, yeah, kind of a sop for sure. But also there was the clear, you know, okay, we're going to kind of establish this as the kind of gateway drug to opening up NATO to all these post-Soviet countries or, you know, like we mentioned Poland especially, but that there were like bigger aims here. Yeah, I think Poland was probably the crucial one. And and I think, um, you know, I I also do think though that Yeltsin came to understand this because, um, you know, uh, he he gave a speech in Budapest uh, in 1994, where he said, uh, you know, NATO was created in Cold War times. Today, it is trying to find its place in Europe, not without difficulty. It is important in the search not to create new divisions, but promote European unity. We believe that the plans of expanding NATO are contrary to this logic. Why sow the seeds of distrust? After all, we are no longer adversaries. We are partners. And so I think that... Um, even even at that point, I think that the the illusion of this partnership for peace idea was seen through, uh, and it 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 really served as a poor alternative to a to a truly independent alternative institution, which the OSCE was. Yeah, it was a pretty rocky meeting. Uh, I think around this time, or maybe actually directly right right before after this speech between Clinton and Yeltsin in uh, in Budapest as well, which covered a lot of these issues. Um, you know, the, this this was. I mean, it sort of just drives home again the point that like any sort of like Russian integration here was seen as essentially just like a fucking joke yeah. by the Americans. Yeah. Like yeah. it was never, it was never really going to happen. And you sort of feel like, I mean, these are Gorbachev and Yeltsin are two deeply pathetic men, right? Like, I mean, I I don't think that you could get a more pitiful figure than fucking Yeltsin. You know, it, when they talk about him jumping out of his chair, I'm sure that was just a polite euphemism for him falling out of his chair uh, and and spilling a glass of California Russian wine all over the carpet. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it just goes to show. I mean, you you see this happen too 
with uh, the beginnings of the NATO interventions too in the nineties, mm. um, because I, you know it, this is uh, the the Balkans are a complicated place, a land of contrasts, you might say, <laughs> uh, and a land of people who all just simply don't know yet that they're Jewish. <laughs> Which is the solution to their problems. Just have everyone convert to the oldest religion that there is that all the other ones took everything from. Anyways, in 1995, <laughs> uh, there's a NATO intervention in Bosnia. Well, I'll say that the crucial things about... So first off, the, the crucial thing about this is that unlike the 99 bombing, which was not UN approved, yeah. this one d- did have a UN yes. mandate. So it was a legal, you know, it was a legal war. Um, but the the issue, if if there was any doubt whatsoever that the OSCE was a non-existent organization, this pretty much confirmed it because, you know, who did who did the European major European capitals, you know, London, Berlin, you know, Paris, who did they send in to solve this European problem? NATO. That's right, right? baby. Right. Best pilots in the business, top yeah. gun. And Which- you know. Yeah, by the way, we should mention that France, like, you know, had basically reintegrated with NATO at this point. Yeah. Even yeah. if not officially. France is a slippery little minx yeah. when it comes to NATO. They still yeah. don't have any American military bases in France, from what I recall, actually. But I think yeah. that could change. But Yeah, and they still have their own, you know, they still have their own nuclear deterrent that's yeah, not absolutely. fully integrated as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think for France, this was just like, okay, how do we... You know, we've been pushing so hard for this alternative to NATO, but at this point, NATO's going in, you know, so how can we have some role in this, you know, some way of of determining what happens here? And especially this was a very tricky issue because of the issue of um, Croatia and Slovenia, uh, who, you know, I I don't want to get into the whole history of the the Balkan Wars at this point (laughs) in time, but... You know, suffice to say, those countries were uh, a lot of German industrial interests were eyeing those countries mm-hmm. with great interest. Yes, and uh, you know, the obviously the geopolitically they were going to remain independent. You know, the, Germany didn't have the ability to change that, but economically they could definitely come into their sphere of interest uh, and open you know, up, as we like to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> open, some, open some, up. Some uh, well. A good friend of mine, the Gourmand, is friends with quite a few ger- corpulent German industrialists. <laughs> and let me tell you, <laughs> the cafes were buzzing with the Balkans during this period. Yeah. And, and you know, NATO, basically at this point, like NATO's role as the, as the guarantor of European security, such yeah. as that was, you know, yeah. you know, massive war in the Balkans, um, uh, that was pretty much cemented at this point and, and would not be questioned, uh, you know, after that. And, you know, the, the French soon enough, I think in maybe in 09 formally rejoined kind of the NATO military command structures and, you know, it was, it was pretty much, you know, but I, but I think at this point it was, you know, pretty, pretty clear. So without devoting an hour or so to it, um, I mean, I think we should talk about, or at least touch on the, the 99 Yugoslavia bombing, because as you mentioned, there were some pretty crucial differences between that and the ones in the ni- the uh, earlier in the 90s. Yeah. Well, for one thing, it was it was not a UN-approved yeah. mission in any way, shape, or form, right? There was no UN mandate for anyone to, to go in and do anything. Um, and this was, uh, you know, the the idea of responsibility to protect, yeah. uh, which arguably had its roots in the Helsinki Agreement, mm-hmm. ultimately, which is a bit ironic since it became a unilateral NATO military action with no UN approval. Uh, but it it and and it had a big geopolitical dimension. 
because of uh, Serbia's historical relationship with Russia and the view in Russia that you know Serbia was was part of the Russian sphere of interest. And so for the for the Americans to uh, go in and and use you know massive military uh, bombings to try to split off a part of Serbia, uh, essentially unilaterally in a way that's not been recognized by the UN. Uh, it, it was a hugely, hugely contentious issue and really, I think, you know, seriously strained America's relationship with Russia at that point in time, uh, which was already starting to be on the rocks. But I think that this was a I think this was a, a pretty serious issue for them. Really quick, we should explain these two concepts that you mentioned, responsibility to protect and guarantor of regional security. These two terms, which get used by both NATO and often the state, the U.S. State Department, uh, basically become the kind of um, like modus operandi of of NATO in the 90s when there is no kind of um, there's no Soviet Union left to kind of justify its existence. And so now NATO kind of comes out and, and like sort of transitions that no, like our role isn't about, you know, defensive against a Soviet invasion, because obviously that doesn't exist anymore, but really that we have a responsibility to basically be the kind of like policeman for Europe and to protect like every, all these little, like we're the mother hen to all these little countries under our hoop skirt, like yeah. in the old timey, uh, old, oh, old I've gotten it. I've gotten it in a couple of mother hens hoop skirts before. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea too, I mean, I think people, you know, if people are familiar with that term, whatever they, maybe they associate it with people like Samantha power or these sort of like, you know, liberal humanitarian, um, screeds about, you know, the, the responsibility to intervene based on, you know, to protect other populations from genocide, ethnic cleansing, war crimes, crimes against humanity, these sort of like international, quote unquote, human rights violations that, um, you know, to be clear, like these are political terms that they're, they're always already political, they're always contested, they're always used as political uh, weapons or tools to for to advance any kind of interests of parties. I mean, even today, like you saw in, you know, Putin has referenced responsibility to protect. Yeah, absolutely. In both the, you know, invasion of Ukraine and in Georgia previously. Yeah. Um, so, you know, these, you know, these are political and fungible for those reasons. The other concept that you mentioned was guarantor of regional security, which is really similar. But basically, the idea is that this this term regional security, which is a very broad definition, like I mean, region that can mean, gets further and further. It, yeah, you exactly. Know, we live in a globalized world, Liz. I mean, who's to say that Northern Africa isn't part of Europe? Yeah, no, <laughs> but that's true. I mean, that's basically like you know we're talking about Yugoslavia, but you know by the early two thousands, like basically before Iraq, really what everyone was looking at was the Baltics, and they're saying no, now this is you know European regional security, which if anyone looking at a map might be like, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so the, but those two become the kind of like big, like, you know, big kind of Clinton to through Obama era, I guess. And even today, although less so um, kind of justifications for U S and NATO led interventions of which, by the way, during this time, there are quite a few. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. I mean, the, the, you know the policies of of the neocons. You know America has had a consistent neocon foreign policy mm-hmm. and neoliberal mm-hmm. economic policy for a long time, but the way it gets articulated is very different, right? You know, for Iraq, it was like this Bush doctrine idea, 
but right, for, you know, starting with Clinton and going through to Obama, this idea of responsibility to protect, it's, a, it's basically a liberal justification for yeah. violating international law and, and invading a sovereign state. Uh, and yeah, I mean, when you look at the Yugoslav situation in particular, I mean, it's not like NATO was acting in an even-handed way. I mean, they pretty clearly picked sides in this, yeah. in this conflict, right? They, they were not evenly, you know, pacifying, right? And the violence of the bombing and the destruction that was wrought on this country, uh, you know, on, on Serbia and on Kosovo, I mean, it was pretty, it was yes. pretty astonishing. Yeah. I mean, and the, the images that came back from that, I think were pretty shocking. And it did spur a lot of anti-NATO protest uh, in Western Europe and also to a lesser extent in the U.S., but it certainly was there. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, they just carpet bombed the place. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it was, yeah, there's the, they kind of, they ran out of precision guided munitions, yeah. uh, because they used them all in like the first week and precision guided munitions is like all terms like that, smart bombs, anything like that. That's all fake. Um, I mean, they are slightly more accurate than like just a barrel bomb or whatever, but yes, not really. Uh, and they and eventually they just had to start using dumb bombs after about a week because they ran out of the like the high tech stuff. Yeah, yeah, it did. And and you know one of the incidents was that the only bombing that the CIA directly had a role in during this uh, was the supposedly accidental U.S. bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, right. uh, which I you know I think is probably related to the the F one seventeen that the Serbians shot down and uh, you know I, the idea that maybe the Chinese had some of those components and. You know that very. Which, by the very, way, the Chinese have not forgotten about that. Oh no, absolutely <laughs> no. not. Yeah, because I mean, what? Uh, seriously, you're trying to expect me to believe that it's an accident? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I really? Mean, yeah. Every building you yeah. bomb this one? Yeah, exactly. They claimed it was like a radio station, or they thought it was a radio station. Or yeah, something like this. it's nonsense. There oh, you was some like um, Chinese like official talking head Twitter talking head. You know those guys that mm -hmm. are kind of like affiliated, or whatever. And mm -hmm. he, I remember, he said that. He was like, the U.S. owes China a blood, blood debt. debt. And I was like, that <laughs> oh is incredible. God. But well, they were talking about the the embassy bombing. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, I got to remember that term blood debt because blood my debt. God, that has to Oh, teeth. I owe some blood debts. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, you just got to keep avoiding the guy you owe him to and you're all good. That's, the, that's, the, that's another true and on rule with any debts. Just stop picking up your phone. Get a new number even. You're all good. What are they going to do? Kill you? Well, then your blood debts were paid. You're all good. It's a win-win situation. <laughs> um, you know, this is really when, like, I mean, both in '95, but in '99, um, well, really, really '95. You know, I, I, I think it seems sort of quaint now, like when you read kind of conspiracy stuff from the '90s, people worrying about UN troops like moving into America, like as if the UN sort of military component really is any teeth or any ability to do anything besides just purchase uh, uh, sex from 12-year-olds in spread third world cholera. countries. Exactly. Spread yeah. shit into rivers and yeah. stuff like that. Like the, the UN- teenagers. Exactly. And and so what you see, I mean, you know, you, you, you differentiate the 99 and 95 uh, bombings by, you know, one was technically legal under international law. And I think that is important. But what you also see is is the UN essentially like losing any credibility as like a yeah. peacekeeping yeah. force and yeah. outsourcing that in the future to the United States and I mean to NATO, uh, but but to this other security organ. I shouldn't say that it's more like a you know security apparatus really because NATO goes from being you know this this. Uh, 
know, like we're describing here, this 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 alliance of military powers in Europe led by America to really being this like global policeman that's uh, you know, whose precinct captain or whatever police chief is America. Um and and you know, the 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 subsequent NATO interventions after that, I mean the the biggies there are Afghanistan. Um, which is, you know, after the 9-11 attacks, it's the only time Article 5 has ever been triggered. Uh, a bunch of countries went into there. It's sort of uh, hard to like really separate it from the America's involvement in Afghanistan yeah. as it was basically the same mission, a lot of training and protecting. They did kill a lot of civilians, uh, which is why I say it's difficult to uh, differentiate it from the American intervention there. Um, but you know, they took over, you know, that was also, there was a UN security council resolution that basically allowed this, uh, this was really unpopular in Europe. Um, and eventually I think France just straight up was like, this is another thing. France is just like, it, I'll get to that. I'll get to another incident in a second, but like France is just the, the, uh, a, 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 a minx like minx like they go their own way. It's difficult to describe. The French are always going their own way. But De Gaulle hung on for so long in the form of like Chirac, like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like just all, you know, I think it really is that, that like De Gaulle element. But you even just, see it with Macron now, right? Yeah. He, he, well, he like, was talking about the European army. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know what he's, well, we can talk about that maybe at the end of this. But yeah, I don't know what, he's like a little all over the place with that. But, you know. But we had another. himself the leader. <laughs> But speaking of France, we had, and speaking of people who owed other people money, in the case of Libya, Operation Unified Protector, which was the NATO no-fly zone over Libya. And I want to be very clear here because no-fly zone is all over the damn news. I'm sure that all of you guys saw that uh, video of these artists throwing these paper planes at the Guggenheim oh, to did, call yeah. for a no-fly zone. Ben, you did not see this? It was incredible. Um, they're getting so much worse with these little, like, yeah. I saw that fem ends back though. And I got to say, ladies, oh, that's, put a top on. Oh, that's the, the tits <laughs> you know out what? for France, uh, right? Oh God. <laughs> Anyways, uh, in the case of Libya, and this is something that we talked about in our episode on Benghazi that we did. Mm. Uh, I think we went into this pretty extensively, but to reiterate a little bit about, uh, here, like the Libyan no fly zone. Which, uh, you know, there's been quite a few no-fly zones, uh, I guess, in the 21st century. But that was basically an excuse to destroy all Libyan military infrastructure. It was also kind of a no-drive zone as well. Um, they destroyed any ability for the Libyan army to fight back against uh, the rebels. They, in fact, purposely they, 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 they performed an airstrike on Gaddafi's convoy, which led to him being sodomized to death by with a knife. Um and totally destroyed the country. I mean, bombed the fucking, you know, the the mint. They destroyed a bunch of waterworks. Uh, and this was, I think, uh, I think it's good to point out too, like this was NATO that did this. Yeah. Now, no article was triggered here. This is not within NATO's official remit. Um, you know, the the way it's sort of portrayed is 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 France really like France was very eager for this operation. Um I think because uh, certain people in the French government maybe owed Gaddafi money. Like I literally did that. Sarkozy, like, yeah, he definitely yeah, I did. Know. I think more than Sarkozy though. Like they, they just yeah. owed him money. It's like, oh, we got to get this guy out of here. Um, but, uh, but, but NATO took it over. And, uh, 
And I think from the point of view from any sort of uh, any large powers that are outside the NATO bloc, they're looking at this and they're going, oh, that's interesting that they can just do this, that they can they can overthrow the government of a country uh, by a really intense air war, air campaign, where, by the way, civilian casualties were not counted. Uh, no. I believe NATO maintains that it killed zero civilians uh, in Libya, which is obviously just a flat out lie and, and oh. shows how much you should trust any kind of numbers like that. Um, I mean, I guess it's not a number, it's zero. But uh, but yeah, I mean, NATO also had a, a, a remit in Iraq. I don't know why I keep saying remit now. But uh, NATO had a presence in Iraq as well. And it's like NATO seems to be just one of those things now that kind of like trails behind the Americans and, uh, and performs duties in their wake. I think NATO increased its presence to about 4,000 people there a few years ago. Uh, and it's still there, as far as I know. It was also like such a, I mean, speaking about Libya, and this is also the case with Syria, right? Where there was like a way for, at least domestically, right? So after Iraq and Afghanistan, although it wasn't after technically, but after the invasions um, with Bush, I mean, those were deeply unpopular in America, mm-hmm. um, especially the longer they went on. And when Obama was elected, there was this kind of, you know, he was elected for, you know, I mean, he was on a, yeah. on a wave of, you know, people thinking he was going to end things. He's like, we're getting out of Guantanamo. We're, yeah. you know, we're getting out of Iraq, all this stuff. Didn't Racism's happen. We over. all know what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the U.S., like the the strategic deployment of NATO at home is using it kind of politically and discursively as mm-hmm. making it seem that the U.S. is not actually involved, that this is a much larger, you know, we've got, it's not just the coalition of the willing, it's NATO, it's this friendly force, it's yeah. European. It's, it's, it's like other. the U.N. Yeah, right. it is. And and so you saw that. I mean, I remember so clearly the way that the White House tried to walk that line with with Libya and the fact that it was so contentious in the White House of the State Department getting involved in the intervention and the way they leaned on NATO discursively. um, I mean, it really is a, you know, it's a, it's a big crutch for them that they're able to kind of go to. And you see it even now with Ukraine. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Um, There was definitely a a lot of feeling in the, um, some of the old hands in the state department. Um, And even people like Brzezinski, for instance, they were, they had, they were opposed to Iraq uh, or, or later came to criticize it very vociferously. And one of the things that they criticized about it was that it was basically unilateral, right? It was, yeah. It's like the coalition, the willing was like Iraq and, you know, Poland, you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. really much of a multilateral coalition. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but Ukraine like you said, troops too. Yeah, exactly. You know, so Bush was able to cobble together, you know, whatever. Australians, European right? Vassals. Yeah. yeah. Always yeah, yeah exactly. uh, Afghanistan. You don't want to, don't Google Australians, Afghanistan. You yeah. won't like the video. <laughs> But the the idea, sort of bringing back this multilateralism as kind of a, a like you said, like a discur- you know, a way discursively to to expand, uh, particularly in the post Iraq situation, the the ability of uh, the U.S. military to do what it needed to do in service mm-hmm. of these imperialist goals, mm-hmm. uh, I think is is pretty troubling. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, fast forward to Ukraine, it's a very similar situation. I think people's reaction to the situation in Ukraine would be very different if it was not a a NATO multilateral operation if it was sort of an, a, a unilateral American uh, thing. So I, I think it's it does domestically in the U.S. serve that that you know role. Of course, for Europeans, I mean, you know, they know what they know what NATO is. It's a, an American dominated institution, right? So they have a very right. different reaction to that mm-hmm. uh, than we do back here. But uh, yeah, I think it I think it definitely serves that purpose in the states. Mm-hmm. 
Well, before we wrap up, because I do think that, I mean, there's so much we didn't talk about. We haven't, we didn't talk about the accession of uh, Poland, which by the way, I do just want to say as a Polish mm, person. Here we go. Let's kind of Polish person. Okay. So this is going to have a lot of Z's in it. I mean, for the, the you know, Poland remains very afraid of both Germany and Russia. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and so in the 90s, I mean, even if you go back and read the diplomatic cables, it's so funny because they'll be like, they'll they'll say like, well, we don't really know how much we can expand NATO and Central Europe, except for Poland. They really want it. <laughs> yeah. The the Polish um, desire for, for, you know, big mama U.S. Uh, mother hen was, is like very real and uh, mm-hmm. grassroots, at least within the the state structures. I think there remained like, you know, I mean, understandably very skeptical of, you know, Germany, especially after the reunification and, you know, and, you know, Russia having any kind of sphere of influence, even as it was like, you know, basically buried in the dirt in the late 90s. Well, too with the, with the uh, with accepting NATO because you know we didn't we we have really not talked about NATO enlargement here. But to give people an idea, NATO went from um, was it sixteen countries at the end of the Cold War yeah, to thirty like countries today. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of those countries are ones that you're like, that's a country <laughs> like Montenegro's part of the part of NATO. Yeah. Um, Macedonia, I believe, is part of NATO now. Uh, which actually, you know, there's, there's, uh, when eventually those two states, Macedonia and Greece, go to war, um, you know, I think every American's going to have to pick sides in that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what NATO is going to do. Um, but, you know, with, with accepting Poland into NATO, uh, I, I think it does, be, it does bear saying that, like, NATO gained a, a, a border with Russia then. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Russia has an exclave in Europe, Kaliningrad. Good. I wasn't about to try to pronounce it. Um, you know, which is uh, which is must be weird to live in right now. I'm not really <laughs> sure. Like, I bet th- those guys are probably like, "Fuck! I wish we could join the EU." Like, you can't go anywhere now. I mean, I don't know how that's working with like airspace or anything like that. It actually works pretty funny in airspace. You can see how they do it with the planes. It's really funny. They just gotta go like, yeah. They they like dip down. <laughs> Jesus, it's so weird. <laughs> Oh um, boy. But then with the Baltic countries, I think that was really contentious. I mean, I know that was really contentious in Russia because, you know, like we mentioned, the U.S. didn't recognize um, the uh, the USSR's annexation of, uh, of the Baltic states. Um, and so they sort of used this in a mealy mouth way to be like, well, we're not actually getting to the territory of the former USSR. <laughs> but like to Russians, this was part of Russia since uh, – I, the early forties, I think it was, or no, late thirties. Um, and, uh, and I think then also NATO then gained a border with Russia that was actually at Russia and not only at Russia, about a hundred miles from St. Petersburg. And, you know, I'm not trying to say the sky is falling here, but it is a pretty goddamn notable development that the borders of NATO have gone from West Germany to fucking Estonia, uh, in, in a very short period of time you know, in, in about, I think about 15 years. Uh, and, and with that, you know, uh, quite a few European countries are in NATO. It's funny. There's always talks about uh, adding like countries outside of Europe to NATO. Yeah. You know, like every couple of years, there's like some meeting, like, should we add like 
Taiwan, not Taiwan actually, but you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, like Australia to NATO. Uh, and, and I, they can't, um, I think for a number of reasons, but I, I have a feeling that eventually they're really going to try to make that push. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, you know, we, yeah, we didn't end up talking about NATO expansion too much, but I'll, uh, I'll just say about it briefly that, um, you know, I think the main, the main, the main issue here is how do you prevent a war yeah. from breaking out in Europe? And well, theoretically, you know, that's the main issue. Yeah, that's but the main I issue for us. That's also. the main issue for the for normal, normal everyday people, people yes. who are just trying to yeah. go about their lives. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, because even if you ignore, even ignoring the nuclear question, which you know is hard to ignore, but even if you ignore the nuclear question, even a major conventional war in Europe would be pretty devastating. Yeah. Uh, probably chiefly most devastating for Eastern Europe. For I mean, yeah, reasons. we can see that the the one in Ukraine is is every day it gets more more and more so. Precisely, and the ultimately, you know, um, because we we talked about the idea that you know, and this is this is true. I mean, under international law, and this was recognized in the Helsinki Agreement, right? That countries have a right to join whatever international mm-hmm. associations that they want to, right? Um, but NATO is a fundamentally aggressive military alliance. And it yeah. can say what it wants to say about being defensive, but if you look concretely at what it has actually done in the post, particularly in the post Cold War period, it's undertaken a lot of aggressive military actions. Most of them, only one of them, approved by the UN. The rest of them mm-hmm. done basically, uh, you know, multi, not unilaterally, but multilaterally. And so, uh, and and ultimately, now we are in a situation where uh, there is a proxy war happening in Europe again between. NATO and Russia. And so all of the things that NATO has done, all of the, uh, all of the militarism in particular that's taken place in recent years has led us to this point where we are right now. And, uh, it didn't have to be this way. There were people who saw alternatives to this Mm -hmm. institution. There were people who, and not, not like pinko commies, like, you know, European States people who wanted this to be replaced with a different alternative arrangement for keeping Europe uh, secure and for avoiding war in Europe. And uh, it's just, uh, uh, it is really just a shame that, that, you know, here we are back again. Uh, and it really seems like the prospect of German rearmament, uh, the French assisting with that since they have a massive arms industry, yeah. I'm sure they're happy about German rearmament. Um, so, you know, I don't think the prospect of European war, is, it's not going to happen tomorrow or in six months, but you know, in an, in another you know five to ten years, if things don't change, if there's not a real reappraisal of this situation, um, you know, I think we're going to be in for a, a, a really rocky ride. And I fear that uh, this kind of very pat and simple uh, idea of you know Putin evil, uh, which has really taken hold in the West, um, if that's your point of view, if your point of view is Russia is a is just permanently, let's say it's in its DNA. If, if your idea is that Russia is a revanchist, irredentist state, and they're going to try to reconquer their empire, and there's nothing we can do, we can't negotiate with them, you have committed the US and Europe to a course of war. And the, the only alternative then is a negotiated political settlement of some kind mm. that um, tries to deal with these issues uh, without the resort to, to military arms. And, uh, you know, I'm... I'm if, unless that happens, uh, I think, I, like I said, I think we're in for a rocky ride. Well, we should say that's not NATO. 
right? Like that yeah. organization is not NATO in no, 2020 absolutely. and not, you know, for a long time, if ever, and probably not in the future. I mean, these we were talking about this earlier, but the calls to rearm, you know, the European countries get even trickier when you remember that they all share a common currency. Yep. How that how competing militaries and rearming countries that also share a common currency, how that happens. For, I don't know how that happens. I don't think anyone knows how that happens. Um, that's never been done before. Additionally, like there, it, there's a, a interesting thing with NATO is that in so we, I should say too that like you know NATO when when NATO like you know grants new membership like it's not just like okay cool we're so happy you're here thanks for coming sign this paper come to the clubhouse let's all meet like come as you are everyone's welcome. Um, safe zone. Like, no, you need market reforms, just mm-hmm. like any other Western institution, like massive market reforms. You need a certain percentage of your GDP budget needs to be to certain type of military allocation, right? You know, there's all, they have all of these sort of like checklists that have to go through. And it has nothing to do with, by the way, like, are you a, a liberal democracy? Are you, what right. are you West? I mean, look at fucking Turkey, like the right. most BPD of the NATO states. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Portugal, Portugal joined when it was a dictatorship. Yeah, it was a straight totally. up fascist dictatorship. Yeah, Absolutely. Straight up. Yeah. Yeah. But so, um, but the, the tricky thing with now these calls to just rearm Europe and, and what is going to be very like, I don't know, wild to watch play out is that like, basically NATO is also in there, you know, their attempts to, like we say, keep keep Europe down while maintaining some kind of like, you know, superiority over them while like having this kind of larger regional alliance is that they pushed member states to with their military and NATO spending to like highly specialize. Right. And so you have like each country does not have anything close to a complete military, right. with the idea being that every country then has to depend on other NATO states, if there were to ever be, you know, an Article Five style, like you know, attack, incursion, invasion, whatever we want to call it, um, and so all everyone except the U.S. By the way, so the every NATO member state is, is like highly dependent on one another. Now that has all kind of gone out the window if we're talking about every state rearming and basically a rearming race, right? So this is kind of like uncharted territory a little bit. Um, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't really know kind of what we're looking at. Well, my thinking is, is first of all, NATO has never been tested as NATO in like a kind of ground war like that ever. NATO was designed to. Yeah. And I can tell you right here, right now, that happens. It's probably going to fall apart. I mean – it's hard to fight a fucking war, right? When the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, yeah. I mean, half these guys didn't have body armor. They shipped them in unarmored Humvees. You know, this is – we are like the best at the military, right? I mean, look at Russia. Russia's losing a ton of fucking vehicles and troops in Ukraine. They have a, they had a really powerful military. Trying to coordinate all of these different countries' militaries together when it's unclear, like say Article Five, Russia, you know, invades a, a total, total, totally just you know uh, exercise here. But like you know, Russia invades Estonia or something. Article Five is triggered. Well, does everyone actually really want to go to war? Will some countries be more into it than other ones? How does that work for logistics or anything yeah. like that? Article Five is actually pretty vague. We don't know what that means. I do know. 
that probably that means America is going to war. America is committing a lot of troops. And regardless, even if everybody joins in, America is going to be in charge of it. Um, but I think if the alliance truly gets tested in an out and out ground war, I mean, it would be, I think it would be a disaster. I, I don't think that it, it wouldn't necessarily mean a loss, but I think it would be a disaster for NATO as NATO and yeah. for any like really like illusion of, you know, an integrated command or anything like that. Cause that shit all falls apart if it's actually tested. I mean, what they were doing in Afghanistan is essentially like, you know, they were doing the same shit as America, like paying contractors a bunch of money yeah. and then like bombing villages sometimes. Uh, you know, training Afghanistan, uh, training troops to like molest young boys better, um, you know, for the government. We should say too, like if you're Estonia looking at what's going on in Ukraine right now, you have to be asking for some real assurances from the US because I mean, okay, look, Ukraine's not in NATO, blah, 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 whatever. But Ukraine has the like full capacity of the US like GPS system that it's using right now. It has a ton of NATO weapons. It's not the U.S. quote-unquote NATO forces going in, but it is about as fully backed as it could be. Including, like, I'm sure, a ton of ways a that we don't Any know. kind of like massive missile defense yeah. system that would have taken like six months to kind of train and set up, right? Hmm. So like, if you're Estonia, you got to be like, huh, is the U.S. really going to come fight... <laughs> Russia yeah. over us. I don't know if you feel comfortable about that. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of diplomats having a lot of like, you know, fun conversations and all of that. But I mean, I think that because like you say, we don't know what Article 5 is. We don't know what what that actually looks like. And and the existence of NATO basically depends on the idea that it will always mm-hmm. forever be enforced no matter what. That yeah, it kind of kind of unravels if the confidence is lost. Yeah, you already see now um, this issue of getting you know Polish and Slovakian planes yeah. to Ukraine, mm-hmm. and it was a, because I mean, is that going to make Poland a target if the if the planes are yeah. Polish and they get sent to Ukraine? Is well, that, who, who are the pilots? Exactly, I'm sorry, Ukrainian pilots well, are flying Polish planes. Okay, yeah. They they are MiG twenty nines, but uh, I think they have NATO equipment in them, so I think that they have to retrofit them regardless. Yeah, but I think that that's a good. I think that situation is just a good example of you know even in this relatively limited engagement for NATO, the the political unity of all of the different parties here is mm-hmm. already being called into question. And yeah, you know. For if you're in Central Europe and let's say something, uh, some kind of crisis happened that involved a, a confrontation between NATO or, or NATO members and Russia in Eastern Europe, do you decide to sue for peace? I mean, that was the French plan. Yeah. But that was part of why they had an independent nuclear deterrent was if Russia invades Western Europe, we'll just have a, well, exactly, <laughs> yeah. we'll have our own peace with them. Yeah. And that is, I think that is very much a fear of, of, I mean, I don't know that France would do that. Maybe they would. Yeah. But, you know, I think so that's funny. very much a concern uh, for the NATO parties is to what degree is this political unity actually real? And when the rubber meets the road yeah. and it actually turns into a shooting war, what is actually going to happen? Uh, I, I think it is a huge open question. And it's why, you know, I saw, I've seen pre- people, for instance, say that um, rather than NATO completely backing off of Ukraine, that instead they should have gone full speed and had NATO uh, Article 5, you know, guarantees for, for Ukraine. And for the reasons I just described, I don't think that would have actually been a solution because I think there's a, a good chance that the Russians might have just said, called bullshit, right? Yeah. And said, you know, 
if if that's real, then make it real, right? Like, let's see yeah. it. It's yeah. existential yeah. anyway, right? Like, hey, for Belgian, you want to go die for, you know, Kharkiv? Yeah, like, exactly. And I think that, I mean, ultimately, I mean, this whole thing calls into question just the liberal order of states yeah. being the way that they are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, like, again, here we are again, you know what I mean? It, this, this, all these different diplomatic channels and military alliances and ways of dealing with this problem. They've, they've led us back here, you know, once again, you know, for the, for the third time in Europe in the, in, you know, about a century. So, uh, very, I don't think that this idea of this kind of, you know, uh, you know, this nuclear clause, this article five clause being this magical incantation that's going to provide security to Europe. I don't think that that's Mm -hmm. really, I don't think that's real. It's witchy America doing like hexes on Putin. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) I'll be real here. NATO can suck me off. Not a fan (laughs) of the organization. NATO exists at the same time as like a global policeman and like essentially an instrument for the US to dominate Europe. And these security guarantees that, you know, it supposedly has for the Eastern states. Well, when those get actually the rubber meets the road here, uh, I, I don't actually see any real guarantees in that. Um, that's something that you read about a lot in sort of like uh, writings about NATO uh, is that like the difference between like guarantees and like what the, what that actually means and the language within it. Uh, and I think a lot of people are going to find a lot of leg room there or a lot of elbow room, whatever, a lot of room to maneuver within the language there. Um, my whole thing though, don't do a war. Yeah, man, we're we're peaceniks over here. Yeah, man. I'm not anti-war always. I think that war is, you know, can be not good, but uh, it can be the unacceptable political outcome um, or processed for, towards an outcome. But uh, I, I would, I would, I would hate to see a war between Russia and NATO. That would be a uh, that would really put a dent in a lot of my weekend plans. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Yeah. Most of which would be joining the Russian army. I was playing. I, I was. <laughs> I had this whole thing before Russia invaded Ukraine. I was like going to do this journalism thing where I I become a general in the Russian army to kind of see what it's like from the other side. Now it's like if I did that, everyone get really fucking mad at me. Yeah, you already got sanctioned. that G tattoo and everything. I mean, I, I know I got that for Zelensky though because I got that. It was I got that on my That's neck. Such I got a it. good character the, guy the, who got the Z tattoo, thinking it was for Zelensky, and I then got it out, the he's day like, that they invaded. De facto Russian nationalist. I mean, it's it, it's bullshit. I mean, you guys know me. You know that I'm the foremost Jewish Chechen in the world. <laughs> And to see what's going on here between my Jewish and my Chechen brother, I'm just saying they need to get. I, I told Liz, uh, I guess I, I I texted you guys this earlier. Uh, Sean Penn needs to get out of Ukraine. We need to put Anthony Weiner in. We need to put him in charge of negotiations, and he needs to bring this whole fucking train to a stop. We laugh and you joke, but I this was my response when work. you said this. I think if Kamala was president, there's a chance that Anthony mm, Weiner could be involved yeah. in this, which is why we have an official announcement here to make a true non podcast. We are K Hive now. We're endorsing Kamala. Yes. Yeah. First of all, don't tell me she's not electable. She's electable if you vote for her. Literally true. <laughs> Math checks out. Matcha, absolutely. Second of all, She's the fucking funniest thing that I've heard in a long time. And I got to say, she's given Trump a run for his money on bangers. She's beating his ass right now, Liz. Let's yeah. be frank. Yeah. The, the, Trump's gay national anthem thing was pretty good. 
But also very, I got to say, like, hmm, maybe something we've already heard from him. Yeah, I'm like, it doesn't seem, it seems, it's like, okay, you know, it's yeah. the gay national anthem. Her press conference with the president of Poland, incredible. I highly recommend everyone, if you're still listening to this, by the way, just stop right now. Stop, hit pause. So now you won't hear this, but now go listen, Kamala. Uh, it's the only thing I'm going to link to in the show notes now. The <laughs> clip of her yeah. at this press conference in Poland. It's just incredible states, I mean, statecraft, just beautiful work. I don't know if she's on Valium or what. It's like, it's too close to the to Veep. I mean, it's like shockingly close. She's fucking cool. Yeah, she rocks. Yeah. I got to be honest. I bet half the NATO command structure is on Valium right now. They got it. Yeah. Yeah. They're certainly on Twitter because that's where like all hell is breaking loose with (laughs) NATO deciding what's going on. Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, And if you're one of those people calling for a no-fly zone, uh, I hope you go into a no-guy zone, uh, which means that you're in solitary confinement in prison for the rest of your life. Never see any guys again. Because you're in a women's prison, which is the most insulting kind of prison to be in for a man. <laughs> I mentioned this before, but it's so funny to me that like Obama and Hillary spent so long trying to obfuscate what a no-fly zone was for Syria mm-hmm. that now the White House is having to do so much work trying to explain what explain actually, actually a no-fly no yeah, totally. zone is to oh, get God. Americans to stop asking for it. <laughs> Um, and to, to reiterate too, I, I, uh, a few friends of mine were shot by like, uh, uh, troops from a NATO country. And so gotta say they can suck my dick. They need to replace NATO with, my idea is this. You know how people don't like it when you're annoying? <laughs> yes, classically. <laughs> exactly. It's one of the things people hate most. Like, yeah, if you're annoying, I understand it right now, actually. <laughs> but like I'm saying, as, as somebody this applies to, as somebody with a lot of negative characteristics about me, Aww, the one that, that people seem to hate the most is the annoying part. You're not annoying. Not you should see what I do. What I, what you should see what I do when you're not around. Yeah. Um. They should just pick all the most annoying people mm. from every European country, which would be a true just quilt of interesting. Annoying. Okay. Not America. Yeah. Put Russia in there, and you know what? Wild card. Why not Pakistan? Get all those guys together. And got to have them figure out everything that goes, oh, my God. oh, we don't have enough weed over here. Why don't you just get the most obnoxious human being in Hungary to figure it out? Yeah. This is like autistic Eurovision. Well, Liz, while I would say that the European vision itself is autistic, what I'm talking about here is not only a European, but a, a, a really a, a global governance structure, right? Mm. I mean, I know, I, I basically, I know some of the most annoying people in the world. I am proud to call many of them my friends. In fact, some of them are, are just me. <laughs> Why shouldn't I get a say on the affairs of other countries, right? Mm. Kosovo wants to be a country. Why don't I argue about it with the most obnoxious Frenchman? In fact, 
Why don't I argue about it with him for years? Yeah. This way, nothing will ever get done. I Every like single decision, nothing ever gets done. And that way, you know, okay, nothing changes, but nothing changes. That's yes. fine with me. Everything, yeah, this is like annoyance diplomacy. Do you know how it would be annoying it, w- it would be if I started to pivot to China? <laughs> that would be insane. Wait, do you mean like pivot, like embrace? Or yeah, like just... or like pivot as in now my attention has turned? Well, that's the thing with an annoying guy. You never know. Yeah, you like, don't know what the pivot is. You don't know if I'm going to become uh, Steven Seagal mm. or Nick Mullen. Yeah, you could also... Do you pivot? For, you could pivot from the pivot, and then you got mm-hmm. two pivots. Well, then you're dancing. Yeah, <laughs> and no one wants to see that. <laughs> no one. No, I, it's, this is true. I actually, I can't dance. One of the things I'm being completely honest here, I can't dance. Really? No, I can't dance. Can I see you try? I don't think I've ever seen you try. Where would you have seen me dance? Yeah, I, guess, I yeah, mean, come yeah, on. We've been. Yeah, that's true. We've been. Yeah. A I've lot of dance seen you. Together. I think I've seen you try. You've and never. No, you've literally. No, I'm telling you this right now, Liz. You've never seen me dance. This is interesting. You know why? Why? It's undignified. That's not think, true. I think it looks weird when that is dance. not true. That's no. That's you know how much true. cocaine I've done at Oli's night. I'm no, no, no. You. you did. The, you need to broaden your your understanding of what dancing is, though. It's not just that kind of dancing. There's plenty what? of dignified dancing that isn't just like kind Cotillion? of like hipster like movements at a fucking bar. Yeah. Well, I do but. I do a lot of urban hip hop type dancing <laughs> that you know, but I, I just do that in the practice. I also do pole dance for exercise. Hmm. We should wrap this up. Before I don't we start. think we so. Go. I think we should just no, keep no, going. We this, up. Is this, is, this is this is these past few minutes here have have given our enemies a lot of ammo. I'm having a great time. Not more so than in any of our recent episodes. <laughs> my thing here, though, if my enemies have ammo, do you know how much ammunition I have? Mm. You might have real ammo of me saying things that like will get me fired. I have what real you ammo fired from? I'm not for a real you. gun. We have and a little NATO of our own here with this little trio. We're uh-huh. in a little NATO. Trilateral? Yeah, we got a little trilateral here. No one's firing at anyone. Well, you guys, we all, it's a, it, you know, it's, there's, a four, there's a fourth. There's Marcos. No, he's not in the structure. Yeah, Marcos is above the structure. Marcos is the America. I'm I'm France. You're the you're Poland. He's uh, Young Chopsy's the UK. Marcos is America. No. Well, Marcos is signaling me now that we have to sign off. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm Liz. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is My name is Brace. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> I'm sorry we went long. I won't do that next time. I'm sorry, Marcos. My name is Brace. Uh, we have Young Chomsky. Uh, Just will- totally changing the the history and and total character of Marcos. Marcos is both my bodyguard, my protector, and my my master. You were about to say servant. My serv- He's both servant and master. We break. <laughs> we 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 He's the break- resolution of the dialectic. Exactly. <laughs> we we turn Nietzsche on its head. Um. It's it's a return to Greece for me with uh, with Marcos. Mm-hmm. Um, Jan Chomsky, of course, at Marcos's behest, um, produces this podcast, which really is done uh, in dedication to God and NATO. Uh, we're <laughs> called Truanon. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein.